0: Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel rogers Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time.
1: Okay. So, uh, Dr. Harrison, welcome to our podcast, and I know you have some very interesting information that our listeners can all benefit from. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This is an
2: interesting experience.
1: Yes, it's an interesting experience for all of us. My daughter has been talking about doing a podcast for about three or four years, and we had time to do it. All we needed was a pandemic to get us started. (laughs) Yeah yeah well um, one of the, um, one of the things that actually got me um, in, interested in having you on our um, on one of our episodes was the fact that you have been in healthcare for such a number of years. but what actually
2: led you into this field? Well it started that it, hey, it was a job <laughs> and um, <laughs> you now I'm supposed to work. And wound up um, moving from job to job for a couple of different reasons. First, because I would have a job, and, and then I got a better one. And then um, one of the things I promised my husband was that I would, when we, well, actually before we got married, um, that I would love, honor, and follow him. And he was in city management. And so, when I met him, he worked for a city in um, Colorado. And then his um, what you do in city management is, is you move up to bigger cities. The second um, job that he had was in um, College Station, Texas. <laughs> um, I am Texas Aggie. I am not a southern girl, okay, especially in during that time frame. But um, and and the reason I say that is, oh, we figured that'd be great, you know, because I might not be able to get the same level of position that I had at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, but I'd at least be able to get a job at, at uh, Texas A and mm-hmm. I went in to talk to, I mean, got my resume all nicely done and everything, went in to talk to the HR director, who was a female. As it turns out. She was the only female in the entire administrative staff other than secretaries. Oh, my gosh. In Texas a What year was this? This would have been 1998, 99, something wow. like that. Wow. Yeah. And hmm. so I said, well, thank you very much. I don't plan on going that far back in my life. <laughs> um, so... I wound up getting a job at a multi-specialty group clinic and that was very interesting because I learned a lot about outpatient care, um, which I didn't have any experience in. So, um, And then from there, we moved. Um, Again, my husband was on a fast track and um, at the same time, he got offers from Fort Worth, someplace in California. I can't remember. Oh, Berkeley. Oh. Um, cool. Yeah, and I was all for that. But <laughs> yeah. he wasn't too crazy about it. And he also got an offer from Naples, Florida. So because my father and his wife were down in Fort Myers, or um, we moved to here for a job, and he worked both at, at the City of Naples and also at Um, city of Marco Island before he retired. I worked in several different places in the area and then came to Hodges first as an adjunct, then full-time. And the university was growing then. They were open to creativity. Um, It was a relatively easy place to work. I retired a little, actually, April of 2015. Um, And from there, um, it was funny, I had contacted the head of the health department in Collier County saying, hey, have you got me volunteer opportunities? And she said, I don't want you volunteering for me. And you have to understand that Stephanie is this very straight-laced individual. And I went, oh, okay. She said, I want you to come to work for me. (laughs) So long story short, um, she asked me, they were trying to develop a better relationship with the universities, um, particularly um, Florida Gulf Coast, but also Hodges and and a, and a couple others. Um, that program over the last five years, um, we have had about eleven different institutions mm. that we have provided either clinicals or um, in, true internships. We do turn two nursing schools have regular. 10 to 15 week um, uh, clinicals and and coursework Um, and that's FGCU and um, Hodges and then we have um, public health students from uh, Walden from FGCU and from um, who else we've done some with um, Florida Atlantic Um, we've done some and we've done some social work Internships, Mm -hmm. which are 500 hours. Um, And, Kelly, I bet you can appreciate that. And and what has happened with the um, COVID-19 is we had to cancel um, all of the clinicals. And I was so excited about these clinicals because we were uh, doing some new things that would allow the the nursing students at both Hodges and at um, FGCU to get a better understanding of community slash public health. Um, And we were having them do a variety of things beyond stand around watching um, the nurse or the doctor treat a patient, which they've already done a lot of because it's their last year or last semester. So um, that got canceled. We finished up the FGCU public health. They did theirs online. That was a lot easier. And right now we don't have any students except... And this is what I'm kind of excited about because I haven't done any of this for a while. One of the things that the, and I know I'm going on and on, but at the um, state level, um, because the the Collier Department of Health is actually a state agency, and I can talk about that later maybe. Um, They have, it's called the um, EFS-8 program, and what it is is, paid volunteers, which I know is contradictory, um, masters in public health students from all over the state of Florida. And um, Mm. they do two-week rotations, but only one of those public masters in public health students has figured out that what she was doing would qualify for an internship. And she will be doing a very short paper. And what she is doing for us, an EPI, is she is a contact, a contact tracker or contact tracer. You could, they, they go by both names. And what she's going to do, which I think is really cool, and it was my idea, <laughs> her paper is going to talk about how, how one gets into this the program that the state has. And then what do we do? Um, describe all the different activities that go on in epidemiology. And then critique them as an outside insider. Um, she's going to see our world differently than we see it. Oh. Wow. Um, and we have learned a lot from people that come in, and from the students that come in too, about how we could do things differently and better. Um, and so she will be. She will have the paper finished early June. Her advisor is one of the top epidemiologists in the state of Florida. Yeah, so it's very cool. And then yesterday I get a call, and now I'm going to be doing, who would have thought? Um, we had, The Collier County government, not the health department. The health department is a state agency. But the Collier County commissioners were feeling guilty, I guess they didn't use those words, um, that they were not providing any assistance to the Collier Health Department. Oh. So they came up with this brilliant idea that they would approach all of the department heads in Collier County, and each department head would um, provide one full-time employee, pay their salary, and they would come over and help and be contact trackers. OK. So that was pretty cool. Um, I was asked yesterday, Um, we would like you to do um, a short PowerPoint on HIPAA. And I said, oh, okay, that's no big deal. I have a whole chapter on privacy and security in the textbook and I have PowerPoints and we have all kinds of stuff. They want me now, they decided, okay, well then what you need to explain to um, the students that are coming, or the students, the employees that are coming from Collier County government, what are the HIPAA responsibilities in, in light of the um, pandemic? And the answer is, it's no different than the other ones. But I will you know, do a PowerPoint and cite the law and you know, talk a little bit to them about what HIPAA is all about. So that's those are the kinds of things I'm doing.
0: Well, can you explain for our listeners um, what HIPAA is and why it's important? Like, I mean, as a psychologist, we get HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA as well. But I think the average person who isn't in a medical or healthcare setting doesn't really necessarily understand. They might have signed something when they saw their doctor last, but I don't know if everybody understands what HIPAA is.
2: Um, agreed. Um, there are times I don't think I understand it. Um, <laughs> HIPAA was actually, the part that, we, that we're familiar with as medical professionals and healthcare professionals, um, we're familiar with is the privacy part of it. And everybody thinks that the P stands for privacy, but it doesn't. It stands for portability and, and then it's an accountability act. Okay. What happened back in 1966? Um, if you were working for Dow Chemical or any company or, you know, any employer and they paid part or all of your health insurance, that's that's a very cool benefit. However, you could not move your health insurance. And, more importantly, you could not, um, there was, there were no pre-existing conditions coverage. So, you know, your husband might get a, and this was back in the 90s, late 90s. So your husband would get a great, great job offer. And the only problem was he has a pregnant wife and a son who has, um, insulin-dependent diabetes, and if he moves, he loses his his health insurance. And at that point in time, pre-existing conditions and group policies were perfectly legal. So his son wouldn't be able to get his insulin. Who knows who's going to pay for the delivery, that kind of thing. So how it started was employers screaming and yelling at Congress saying, do something about this. This is crazy. You know, we can't get good employees because they lose their health insurance. Um, you'd think they could figure that one out on their own, but no. So at any rate, Congress went through and they fixed that part of the problem, um, allowing for um, portability, um, allowing um, for um, employers to cover their, employers, their employees earlier, and to do and to do away with pre-existing conditions when moving from a group policy to another group policy. That was the other thing that was a problem. Okay, because a lot of people went out and bought their own insurance, only to discover that it wasn't covered. So that's the portability part of HIPAA. The, the um, accountability is where the privacy comes in. And um, because the other thing, this was the first time that um, Congress had attempted any health care reform back in the 90s. And then they didn't do anything to 2010, but um, they they fixed it so that um, employees could move on to health insurance and mandated by law, That health insurance could not do pre-existing conditions exclusions. Okay, so if you moved from Michigan to to California, your new employer's insurance had to cover pre-existing conditions. And it solved a lot of problems. The privacy part took a little longer, but the intent of the privacy and security, um, there's actually four parts to it, two of which are just computer-driven really, um, all and one other insurance thing. But the privacy simply says you cannot reveal a patient's medical conditions and or history without specific um, knowledge, or I'm sorry, specific signature by um, the, the patient or the patient's caregiver if the person is, you know, alive but not doing well mentally. Um, lots of signatures, as you well know as a practitioner. Um, and so, and, we, and I actually had to defend HIPAA to a cop, to an FBI agent mm. with his he had his gun. Oh my goodness. And he came in and he, this is when I was in Texas and he came in and he wanted to, you know, he made a point of letting me see his gun and I'm, you know, Johnny do right from the FBI and I saw his badge and everything. How can how can I help you? Well, I need Johnny Jones's medical records, and I said, "Do you have a release from Johnny Jones?" No, I'm the FBI. I said, "I don't care who you are." You know, as as um, Elsa knows, I can get a little sarcastic. <laughs> um, and he said, "But i I said, "I don't care. Um, you cannot have his record." or his wife's or anybody else's without specific written and I'll give you the release form and we will check his signature and he stormed out and he wanted to know who I reported to and I reported to the administrator whose office was right across from mine and he had heard the whole thing and he just basically told that guy to get the hell out. But it was designed to protect that kind of invasion. Um, that. Can I ask? Go ahead. Can I
1: ask? um, This is a question that I think some of our listeners may have, and um, I'm just going to ask it. Does HIPAA, the privacy and everything else, uh, go away when once someone dies?
2: No, not necessarily. Some of it does. Um, It depends on the circumstances. Yes. Um, Obviously. HIPAA doesn't hold when there has been um, a criminal act and the person has died as a result of that act because they need those records. But they're usually only released to the medical examiner. Uh Um, You um, could get your spouse's records under certain circumstances. Um, And most of the time, the the primary care physician or whoever was caring for the, the deceased will give them to you they won't fuss with it but you know i'd I'd have to double check because i don't remember in the complete details and what um happens i try to stay away from topics like that but no (laughs) Um, i will check and let you know Um, but it's a it's a it's a craziness and i will tell you that it's not hard for um physicians offices to get confused I walked into, what was it? it was always for when I was having my um, radiation therapy. Um, they, they handed me a sheet, and they said, please check and make sure all this information is correct. And I looked at it, and my husband's standing right next to me, and it says spouse, and then it says deceased. And I said, um, w- w- wait a minute, I, I don't think this is right. And then I discovered there was a bunch of other errors. There were two, <laughs> Carleen, Harrison, patients. That practice, and I I know that she really existed because she used my name um, in some fraudulent activity. Mm. So, yeah, but it is is very much um, they're supposed to check. That's why they constantly ask you for a new signature, um, that kind of thing. So,
0: I mean, you'd be astounded um, at. Like your FBI agent story, like I've never had anything that dramatic, but all kinds of like it's a legal, um, it's something that's legally binding for medical and healthcare practitioners. But like I get attorneys trying to break that all the time or calling and screaming and yelling or signing something, quote unquote, on their client's behalf and trying to send that over as a release of information. Like it's astounding how. Um, how much you really need to understand what you can release, what you can't release, and you have to be checking constantly.
2: Oh, especially in in your specialty, because there's going to be all kinds of other issues. Now, you know, that that would come up in terms of their mental state that it could make a difference. Yeah. Well, and attorneys, um, I hope none of them are offended. Their main way to operate most of the time is by yelling and screaming. I worked for attorneys when I was in high school. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, I did a quick search on the internet and there's all kinds of, of stuff from the CDC about HIPAA privacy with contact, content, contact tracer, tracers. Oh,
0: well, but I was actually curious now that we're kind of talking about like the public health piece of things and needing to have contact tracers. How do people navigate that? Okay, so you've been diagnosed with COVID-19 and they're trying to track the contact that you've had. Um, At what point, like, that's a public health issue, but how do they walk that line with the privacy component of HIPAA?
2: Um, In the same way that they walk it when they're checking for STDs, um, you know, HIV, all those kinds of things. they, They get a list from the patient. If the patient will give them a list, um, and with STDs and things like that, that's not always easy. But with, with COVID-19, they get a list and as much information as they can get from the patient about: Do you have a phone number? Do you have someplace like do you have an email? You know that kind of thing of these people. You know when they say public's health, uh, public's grocery store on Bonita Beach Road. We can figure that out, all right? And then they go in and, and they talk to a manager and explain that there has been an individual in the store or there is an individual, if it's a person, that's an individual that you know that has tested positive for COVID-19. Where it gets sticky is with employers, um, not necessarily publics, but it's pretty easy for an employer to figure Well, I would think, To figure out who the person is, because they're not at work, Mm -hmm. or they shouldn't be at work, and they simply if if they're asked, they're saying they'll say under HIPAA, I'm not allowed to reveal who it is, but I can assure you that they provided us with your name, kind of thing, and then then what they have to do if it if it appears appropriate, then they have to ask that person that they've contacted. Who have you been in contact with? Because if you, you know the part of COVID nineteen is, is that you're asymptomatic for so up to a week or two, you know. So yeah, it's it's difficult. And if the people will not respond, then they move on. You don't, you know, you can only push it so far. Has there ever been a situation where? Um, uh
1: It's an obstruction of, let's say, justice if the person doesn't give particular information. For example, you talked about STDs and perhaps COVID-19. But have there been any other situation where it's um, imperative that the authorities
2: get information before they move on? They're going to move on and treat the patient. That's their first job. And that normally is referred outside the health department to a physician. Either a primary care physician or if they're bad enough, they take them to the ER. But um, what happens if they don't get the information? They don't get the information. There's nothing they can do. And they're not releasing how many non cooperative um, patients there are, much less how many non cooperative contacts there are. I mean, that's just going to, you know, we'll have protests in front of the building, I would imagine. They do whatever they can do. And they try to sweet talk people without, you know, going, you know, that, hey, this is important. You have to understand um, that, that this is difficult enough as it is, but we want to help the citizens that we can't know if they're in a different county. Um, I'm pretty sure they move it on to a different county as far as contact tracking. Um, I honestly don't. I've never, I've never done contact tracking. And part of the, the process that the, my graduate student is doing is she's describing what contact tracking is. <laughs> so I'll be better able to answer the question soon. Now, um, I just have learned from talking to, you know, um, the, the epidemiologists that, that, that are actually trained epi folks don't have any time. They work 12 to 15 hour days. In some cases, they work 24 Oh, my gosh. Um, Because we're also responsible for a number of other things. We are responsible for maintaining the information lines. So if somebody has a question about COVID-19, it's on the department's website. And they can call, and there's somebody there. And it's a 24-hour line. But I think it is shared with other health departments. um, So there's always somebody to answer the phone. So, you know, people say, I have this, 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 and this. These people that are answering the phone can say, okay, this is what you need to do now. This is what you need to do tomorrow. Uh, And, you know, the people haven't identified themselves necessarily. Um, But we had a number of training sessions for people that, um, I mean, almost everybody uh, in the in our health department is assigned to a COVID nineteen task of some kind.
1: I didn't realize that um y'all were so heavily involved at least the area that you're working in. Um do you have any specific questions because I'm going through
0: I, Well I do and I, I think I mean this is educating me, but yeah. I also imagine that a lot of people don't know about this. So exactly. we know about like our physicians and we've heard of public health, but since you have kind of worked in um, both areas, can you help us understand the difference between you know, health care and public health, and then also the overlap? Yes. Hmm.
2: OK, the first thing, and I only learned this this morning when I was talking to somebody in HR at the health department. The state of, the state of Florida has more regulatory agencies than the other 49 states. Wow. Right? Keep that in okay. mind. We don't even do all of what most people might think about as public health. So one thing that people probably it always comes to mind is they inspect restaurants. Well, they do, but it isn't the public health department in the state of Florida that that does it, or right? in, in your county. It is uh, the Bureau of Business Regulation. What? Yeah, well, and that's not unusual. There is a dogfight between all of the different agencies within the state. Um, and the the um, person I was talking to put it more politely. She said, I was at a seminar one time, and this woman had put up um, a highway with a bunch of lanes and she, um, on the screen, and everyone was looking at it. She says, These repre- the lanes represent the regulatory agencies in the state of Florida. Stay in your lane. <laughs> okay. So they work together when they have to, when they're forced into it. The folks that are coming in from Collier County government is not part of the state; they are county government. Um, so public health can be any one of a number of things that are that people think about: in, unsanitary conditions. I just I mentioned inspecting establishments. Um, we guard against unsanitary conditions, but we get other folks out there to take care of most of them. Um, uh, one that's on the list is exterminating pests and vermin. If we find them, we tell somebody. We're very happy to give that one up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, they check water quality. Uh, When you see, and and again, staying in your lane, we check water quality by every week, at least twice a week, I think but for sure once a week, you will find out on the beaches in Collier County and Lee County and all of the counties that have waterfront, um, there will be a health department person out there um, checking the water. Now, we don't get to report it. We get to report it to fish and wildlife stay in your lane (laughs) okay um we do um we we set up ways at the state level for physicians nurses and other health care providers to report um, um diseases and illnesses you know like whooping cough or measles or whatever um, to certain that it gets reported, there's a state website and they report them. Now, not only do they report them, but healthcare, you know, pediatricians, primary care docs also can report them. There's a huge um, website that we're all, you have to have access to, um, to do those kinds of things. Requiring investigations to be conducted in an infectious disease outbreak. That never happens, so we don't need to worry about Mm. it. Um, There's only, what, 70,000 people dead or something. Um, um, Vaccinations, that's also an interesting one. They're done by healthcare providers um, that are pediatricians, primary care docs, but they are also done by health departments. It depends on how you can pay for your, um, your excuse me, my voice is going. Um, it depends on how you can pay for your vaccine. And so we do that. They also, um, in the state of Florida, um, parents can um, say, I do not want my children vaccinated. Because it's actually the school system in the state of Florida that says you can or cannot come in if you're not vaccinated. The only thing right now, and there may be some changes after this, um, if you're not vaccinated for mumps, measles, rubella, all those kinds of things, you have to get an exemption from the health department. The problem is that's an exemption without strength because we cannot deny a parent, the right to not vaccinate their child. But they have to come in, they have to meet with a nurse, they have to explain why, and they can use religious objections. Um, and we've been very fortunate in this county to not have any other epidemics that uh, is, in, in the, school,
1: in the that schools. Is, yeah, you, Nicole, you are right. I am learning a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, really, I didn't know that it was. Well, could you could just come to one of the orientations. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, if we have to quarantine someone, we work with other agencies, but um, who, you know, have to be quarantined.
0: Um, so how how is that working now? Because we go from a time where people don't even register the idea of quarantining because it's not a day to day thing for us to. It's something that we're hearing about every hour. Um, So how have things shifted for, um, you know, public health agencies, departments of public health, now that we're in the middle of a pandemic?
2: Well, what's happened is we have the ER on speed dial. Uh, Okay. Because the people that need to be quarantined, you know, physically not allowed to leave We're on a soft quarantine, you know, a stay-at-home, or actually we're not even on that anymore, um, order. Um, But um, what happens is they call the ER, and the ER comes and gets the patient. I mean, the ambulances do. Um, And then they can, because we're not set up to quarantine people. We don't have ventilators. We don't have, you know, all that kind of stuff. We have all the personal protective equipment. And when I say that, when you become an employee of, of the Collier Department of Health, you are issued an N95 respirator. I, oh, I you know I it was put in a little bag. I had it all measured and everything, and um, I brought it home and it sat in the drawer for five five years. <laughs> um, but the only thing we can do is you know we would isolate them and then get them the hell out of the building. Oh um, wow. So, um, I mean, our health department, we inspect tattoo clinics. What a place to catch a virus, right? But we always inspected them. And interestingly enough, it was the tattoo parlors that requested that we do it. Okay, because there were a bunch of not-so-safe tattoo parlors out there. And... um, Were they concerned about their reputation? Yeah. One of the reputation clear. Okay. They would inspect it. I mean it was a marketing, but hey, it works. We have to inspect swimming pools. They have to inspect what Lee County would. Be. One of the things we do, which would be pretty unique to Collier County, there will be some other counties that have to do this. We inspect migrant housing. Um, you know, you don't see healthcare providers doing, you know, a you know, a physician. Right. Um, and there are certain state things that uh, state regulations that they make sure are there. Um, We do a variety of um, inspections. Um, We inspect tanning salons. We work with the CDC. I mean, I've, I've got lots of different stories about what public health does. Health, but it is designed to be provided to any citizen that needs it in one way or another. We don't charge For visits, if you have an ability to pay, if you have health insurance, we sure will take it. We do children's dentistry at our health department, but they don't do that in Lee County. In Lee County, they do primary care. We don't do very much primary care. We used to, but but the the state took it away from Collier because the numbers were pretty low. Um, Yeah, because there's other clinics that are you know so you see a call your health services for example they're not technically public health um, in the in the sense that the state is supporting them okay
1: you know one of the things that we we were concerned about is that um we were concerned about what the average person doesn't know and should know about the about public health i think you have given us a lot of information that um we can now share with uh with the listening the listening um, public, but uh, just 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 changing gears a little, I, I introduced you as someone who's retired. You don't sound as a retired person <laughs> because you're so busy, but um what has the transition been like for you or has there been a transition because you're still so
2: very involved? Well, At the very beginning, probably for a couple, I didn't start working for the health department the day after I left Hodges. So when I got started, I was probably then working like 15, 20 hours a week, learning everything I could about the health department, you know, meeting people, all that kind of stuff. Then when everything kind of settled down, um, we were also doing a lot of traveling. So the transition, we'd always travel And now we just traveled on longer, more expensive, farther away trips. Um, And um, I kept up with that um, until I had um, my illness that started a couple of years ago. I also did some other volunteer work. I worked with um, four- and five-year-olds where English was their second language. And I would come in um, to the – it was pre-K – and work with the kids one day a week in and reading and counting and, and that kind of thing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I worked as a volunteer for, um, uh, excuse me, the Collier County Public Library, who had a program of going into assisted living facilities and making presentations about anything we really wanted to do. And I had a partner, and she and I would come up with all kinds of ideas, and we'd get them involved in games. And these are people in assisted living, not in the nursing homes. Um, so they were still pretty coherent. We did a thing on presidents' wives, and so we had a whole bunch of pictures. And we had accidentally put Martha Washington in um, Abe Lincoln's wife's whatever her name. They would we switched them, and she was very quick to inform us we were wrong. <laughs> Um so and um, you know, we have made a lot of friends or already had friends like also that we go out to dinner with, um, go to the movies with, that kind of thing. So we stayed pretty active. Um when I was first diagnosed to a little over almost two and a half years ago with cancer, and I don't know if most knows that or not,
0: but Oh wow.
2: Yeah, um I had endometrial cancer. And I won't bore you with all the insane treatments I've had. Um, And it goes away, and then it comes back, and they try something else. It was actually a blessing that I was retired um, because uh, some of the side effects from the various treatments were just – I never vomited. You know, you always hear about chemo, how you you throw up and da-da-da-da-da. What I've had off and on, with the exception of one treatment that finally stopped working, is um, fatigue. Incredible fatigue. And so being retired helped because I didn't have to ask anybody if I had to go could I go home. I just went up and upstairs yeah. and lay down. So that part of the retirement has been good for me. And we have done a fair amount of traveling. Um, um, yes. and yes, me,
1: sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. No, I was just saying um you you you, you segue into the next question I wanted to ask you. That You've done a fair amount of traveling, but has your attitude changed at all uh, toward traveling because of the pandemic? Absolutely. How
2: so? How so? I'm not going to. Well, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. Um, we had um, a, a, four, a 12-day cruise scheduled for early July, the Baltic Sea, you know, doing Stockholm and St. Petersburg. Oh, wow. You know, a, and we had decided we were going first class. And so that's why we were on the Regents Cruise Line, which is one of the top in the, in the world. And um, we've been counting the days. And we finally got notice from them about two weeks ago that they were refunding all cruises. They weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to, the cruise was not um, gonna, going to go. I mean, one of the places we were going was Sweden. And I keep reading about Sweden now, you know, it's like, oh my God, I don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, And we will probably travel in the States because we at least understand the States. Um, Well, I don't know that we understand them. We um, are able to function and and move about and know when there might be trouble looking in our face um, to get the heck away. Okay. Yeah. and so, but right now, we don't really want to travel. Um, we're going to wait, and, and we've looked at a couple things like, and this isn't the right city to do it in, which is what the problem is. We love Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. um, and we love the museums, unbelievably. I am a charter member of the um, um, the Smithsonian Museum for, oh. um, well, not of, of the, the big, the whole thing, but. I'm a charter member of the American Indian and the um, uh, yeah yeah I can't the the African American ah oh. that's on nice my bucket list yeah that I'll tell you what that is the most phenomenal museum I've ever been in the Indian museum is go, but you have to go and you can't just go you have to have a reservation you don't have to pay anything so I can send you the information about becoming a, um, a supporter. <laughs> And then they'll send you notices every month that says, okay, you can now register. They'll send one out. Well, they uh, just sent one out. out and that would really make nice. sense. You can now register for August 1st. Really? And you have two days to do it, to get in. It's five stories. You wow. need to plan an entire day. Um, it, it, it tells the most phenomenal stories. Um, and. Um, we just, you know, we went very early. And so most of the folks that were there were African-American slash black, whatever the appropriate terminology is. Um, and they kind of kept looking at us like, what are you white people doing? What are you doing here? <laughs> we, we um, you know, treated everyone respectfully. The American Indian, it's a little easier to escape notice, if you will. Um <laughs> And, and it's a totally different formatted museum. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, um, and the other thing that we did at my insistence, we the very first day we were there, I think it was the same time. Um, we stayed at a hotel that we had stayed at for years. Um, that's right across from the um, portrait gallery. Mm-hmm. And the Obama portraits were up. Uh, and um, we checked in around 3 o'clock, and I said, we can still get in over there. And the desk clerk said, well, you can, but if you wait about 45 minutes, you'll get right up to the portraits. There won't be a line. Uh, and so I have a picture of myself with both portraits. Oh, wow. Oh, that's good. So that was very cool. It's on, yeah. So. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we're thinking about those kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how safe places are. I'd like to visit my family in Colorado, but I'm not real sure. It it is so far, I don't think. Well, no, Colorado has had it too. I am a believer in in peaceful protest. I am not a believer in armed militia being. Okay. and both Colorado and Michigan have had that as an issue and I have family in Michigan too so um you can't tell this but I'm kind of a little <laughs> okay um, you, you
1: want to ask that ask Dr. Dr. Harrison this one question that we asked all of our guests
0: okay oh yes yes so You know, after you kind of live a life and you end up, I I don't know that we ever completely end up where we think we will because life is a winding road, but what we've been asking all of our guests is, if the you, who you are today, could go back in time and talk to the 15-year-old version of you, what would you tell her? The
2: 15-year-old me? Yeah. Yeah. I would say don't screw around getting your college degree. Get it. Get your master's. Get your Ph.D. I, um, you know, that kind of thing, because um, I did. I took – I started at Wayne State University, and as usual, I'm a study in contrast because I was the chair of the Pan-Hellenic Council for all the sororities, and I was also the leader of the Vietnam protests. Um, oh. So I almost got thrown out of my sorority as a result, but um, – I explained to them it's called free expression. Um, (laughs) But um, I still probably would have done those things, but I would have finished my degree at Wayne State University. But I'd had it and I'd fallen in love with a guy that I'd met on a um, vacation in Colorado. So I moved to Colorado and eventually um, finished my undergraduate degree in sociology and then got a master's in public administration. Um, so, you know, I was in school for a long, long time. I didn't start on my doctorate until 2001, I think. Um, I would do that differently. I would stay in school. Um, and I've been grateful that my grandnieces and nephews, because we did not have children, um, I'm grateful that they have followed that path. The first one a little unwillingly, but he's got one more semester um and, and and he's i'm expected at his graduation in Mount Pleasant Michigan in December and i've mm. explained to him that's probably not happening mm. because it's too cold <laughs> now my and and my niece my grandniece um is fit, she's graduating and they still haven't decided they are being allowed because there's only 12 of them i think to decide whether or not to wait until it's okay to have a ceremony. So they have not scheduled anything else. We were supposed to go up there at the end of May. But if I was fifteen again, I would listen to what folks said about finish your your education. Because then I would have had a lot more options. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's—I
0: mean—that's really helpful to kind of know because there's no way that you know when you're 15 you get it, you know. Huh. Well, I think, um, but <laughs> um, but I mean, I think what's really admirable though is that even though life happened, you still you still did it.
2: Well, part of that was and, and particularly for the masters was Bill, my husband, insisting that I finish it. Okay. Um, so he was, you know, and then he pointed out, you're a woman who doesn't have as many advantages simply because that's the way the world works. Mm-hmm. And um, you can fight that or you can get, you can be better than them. And that's what I tried to do. So, Good advice. Yeah. Well,
1: Colleen, this has been very, very, very good. It's very informative. And I learned a bit more about you which is good. And um, perhaps when we do the next session, you can be our guest again. Yeah. Be happy. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's nice to meet you, and
2: Kellan. I'll talk to you soon, Elsa. Okay, you take yeah. care. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye-bye.
0: Thank you to Dr. Harrison for joining us on this episode of At the Same Time and teaching us about HIPAA and what it is, what the Department of Health does, and throwing in some travel tips for good measure. We're only halfway through the season. We've got more episodes planned on things like research and how they put together a vaccine, spirituality, and Chinese medicine. I hope you'll join us for more at the same time. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers-Wood, PhD, and Elsa
1: Rogers, PhD.